Hello, and welcome to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. In this first of a four-part series, Dorje Lopan Dr. Hanlai discusses the basics of meditation as practiced and taught by the historical Buddha. These teachings discuss citta bhavana, or the development or cultivation of the heart-mind, that is at the core of Buddha's way of meditating. Urban Dharma is a Buddhist temple in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. We are supported by your generosity and by our online store, TibetanSpirit.com. To learn more about us, come visit our temple in person or look us up online at UdharmaNC.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I thought I saw, maybe I'm seeing things now. More than ever. I thought I saw John. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 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 okay, so he is here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in a second, John will uh, turn up. Uh, so, before I forget, I want to say that uh, every Tuesday night, uh, John facilitates um, a, a meditation um, class here. Uh, and um, it goes from John. What time does Tuesday start? <laughs> I was telling them about Tuesday. From 7.30 to 8.30, uh, John facilitates uh, a sitting group here. Uh, and so that is a, a, a good place uh, to kind of continue um, what uh, you might learn here today. Um, and it's... Uh, 7.30 to 8.30. Uh, it's uh, no smells, no bells, uh, just, you know, <laughs> plain old sitting, a um, little bit Quakerish. Um, and uh, so that's a good place um, to kind of remember. And whenever you need, you know, uh, just come in. Uh, there's no commitment to come continuously or anything or any expectation like that. So just come in uh, when you need some quiet, when you need some sanity. Uh, Do know that Tuesday nights, um, 7.30 to 8.30, somebody will be here. Usually John. (laughs) Um, So uh, this is the, as uh, May uh, uh, introduced us, this is the beginning of uh, four... Sundays, uh, where we will um, look at the topic of um, Buddhist meditation. Now, of course, there's a lot of things uh, under this umbrella term, uh, Buddhist uh, meditation. Mm, I'm sure all of you know that Buddhism as a tradition started in India uh, about 2,500 years ago, uh, when an Indian uh, prince, as later traditions would call him, although maybe in his own time he was uh, the son of an important chieftain. Uh, it's more accurate to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so privilege uh, within his background, uh, within the context uh, of his times, definitely privilege. Um, and so uh, the story goes that uh, uh, he uh, grew up in a life of privilege. Um, 
And it wasn't until the age of about uh, 29 that he, his questions about his privilege and his question about uh, what is this all about? Uh, is there more to uh, the life that I have been living now? Uh, came to a point where uh, he decided to check out. Uh, so he left uh, his life of, of privilege, and he wandered around for uh, six years uh, and uh, kind of checked out uh, a number of uh, practices, teachers, groups, communes, other dropouts, um, and did all kinds of things. Um, we know now that it was a time of kind of uh, spiritual uh, renaissance in India, uh, which started probably at least a century before his time. And it went on for at least another century, this kind of flourishing of ideas and, and, and viewpoints and lifestyles, really. Uh, in a way, what he did was uh, radical. Uh, and I think if you really think a little bit about it, it is radical even now uh, because he left and he said, you know, everything that you guys do to replicate the world as we know it, society as we know it, I'm done. You know, so it was radical. Um, we tend to think of religion, I think, as you know, very conservative, and religion does become that. Uh, but what the Buddha did and what he saw, this vision under the tree, so goes the story, that after six years of training with various teachers, trying different approaches, uh, we said that he went into the extremes of self-mortification, uh, so for 29 years, he lived life of uh, extreme indulgence. Uh, so much so that, as I said, later tradition said that he was uh, a prince yeah, of a mighty kingdom. Uh, so he got everything that he could want, and uh, he wasn't happy. So then he went into the extremes of asceticism, and uh, they say that uh, at one point he was eating only a grain of rice uh, per day, uh, and that was what he did. So, um, true or not, you know, we're not sure. Uh, but the point being made was that um, he went from indulging himself to depriving himself in these two extremes. But when he finally uh, gained what we call or experienced what we call uh, awakening, which the word Buddha means the awakened one, one who is awake. That's all it means, yeah? the one who is awake. Um, that when he finally experienced awakening, uh, he understood that liberation or freedom or the kind of happiness that is not conditioned uh, cannot be reached either in um, in like fulfilling every single willy-nilly desire that pops up uh, cannot be reached that way 
nor you know going to lengths in trying to overcome the limitations of the body or the limitations of the mind or whatever it is. So these are like the two extremes that he realized in the deep way uh, isn't really the answer. So instead, uh, you could say he had a vision, he had an understanding, he had an awakening uh, that completely transformed his whole understanding with regards to uh, what is the problem, what is the nature of the problem, and how, yeah, how to um, respond in the face of the problem. Yeah. And I think what he saw, what he realized, uh, lies at the core of um, what we now call Buddhism or what I like to call Buddhisms in the plural. Uh, because if you're not familiar, each of them can look quite different, and some of them don't even recognize the other Buddhists because of this vast cultural differences. Uh, but I would say that all of them, uh, kind of at their core, uh, is... Um, different ways to express and experience and re-express and re-experience that core vision. That core vision. That Siddhartha, that son of the chieftain, that prince uh, experience sitting underneath this tree that later Buddhists call the Bodhi tree. Uh, the, uh, the tree of uh, awakening a Bodhi Buddha these are all con- uh, cognates uh, um, so what is this uh, vision under the tree uh, this vision under the tree uh, is actually quite simple and maybe even you know as we would say, kind of like a no-brainer. It wasn't something that profound or that mystical. In fact, it's not. Now, later, that vision got dressed up, you know, in all sorts of things, right? Then, then, then over time, necessarily, or uh, quite naturally, uh, that vision took on religious clothing, that vision took on you know, economic clothing, political clothing, and cultural clothing, and this and that. Uh, then, you know, all sorts of things got added, uh, sometimes helpful, sometimes not so helpful. Uh, and, you know, that's all the different Buddhisms that we have. But the, the vision itself is kind of really simple. Uh, now, of course, then that simplicity takes about four Sundays. <laughs> uh, maybe because it's so simple, it's deceptively simple. Although simple, it's a little bit annoying. That vision. 
it's a little bit annoying. Uh, because it's not the usual kind of uh, encouraging uh, or, you know, kind of <coughs> necessarily like inspiring uh, because it's, it's kind of direct. It, it, so it's simply... So, so where we can begin... Uh, to look at this simplicity is um, some of you, you know, I'm sure know this Buddhist text called uh, the Dhammapada. Uh, so I'm just going to read a few lines from the Dhammapada. Uh, and it's the opening lines of the Dhammapada. And I think right there it states, you know, what that vision is. Yeah, so. I, I, let me read that and then let's see, you know, your response to this. Yeah? So this is the very first chapter uh, and these, this particular pair of sayings. This whole chapter is organized under the heading called the pairs. Uh, so they're contrasting pairs. So this is what it says. All states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure heart. And then, all states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow when we speak or act with a pure heart. So I'll read this pair again. And we should not be in a hurry, by the way. <laughs> we have four Sundays and this is part of the vision the method is that you can't rush it uh, for the duration of this afternoon just say to whatever that comes up that is trying to get your attention away from being here just say to it later. Don't say no to it because then it'll get unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, just say later. Yeah, if it's chocolate, later. If it's planning what to do tomorrow, just say later. And just, you know, don't pick a fight, you know, with all these competing interests. Just tell them later. So the pairs, again. All states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure heart. 
All states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow when we speak or act with a pure heart. Yes? It really makes me just be like, well, what does pure mean? Sure. Right? What does pure mean? Or impure. Or impure. Instantly for Americans, you know, our heritage of Puritanism, (laughs) whether you like it or you hate it, you know, that immediately enters the room like a big giant elephant. Ah, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's heart. Heart here, again. Uh, Here, actually, very easy. Uh, That which knows. That's all. The heart. Yeah, that which knows. Yeah. That 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 capacity to know. That capacity to think. That's all. Every anything else you have read, you know, about what the heart is and all of that, uh, don't apply here. Let's stick to just this simple, you know, that which knows. So pure. Any sense or ideas or like what's pure and impure? I mean, I've already brought those guys with the black hats and big hat, you know, into the room. So (laughs) if you want to talk about them or like without ever having sin. Oh yeah, then another big word, you know, sin. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sure, you know. um, well, th- that's not what this is talking about, but that is sort of like the baggage that we have. And we can't ignore that baggage. You know, like it or not. You know, it's always kind of hovering somewhere back there. But I can tell you, this is not what it's talking about. Pure or impure. Uh, which is not to say issues of, you know, Sin or redemption and all that might not be meaningful under certain contexts or under certain other circumstances. It's simply not what the Buddha was concerned about. And I think if we draw very reasonable expectations or lines around this material, then we don't have to fight it. I'm not here to convince you to believe anything. Not even to persuade you. But it's just to offer an opinion and offer an insight into this fundamental vision which I want to say has its limits as in to the question of where did the world come from but they're not interested (laughs) as to you know is this world energy or matter but they're not interested Are they interesting things to think about and to contemplate or to even make it part of your spirituality? Depends on you. But here, like I said, you know, the vision is kind of boring sometimes. But of course, you know, that I would spend four weekends uh, on this is because I think it's helpful. And that's what, you know, I would like to offer, that it might be helpful. So anyway... 
someone. Pure and pure in this context. Vulnerability. Say more. Um, a willingness to be open to the experience of the moment, be it something that brings pain or joy. And that would be pure and pure. Pure? Oh, okay, pure. Uh huh. So what sense of purity are we talking about if we define it that way? Yes. Emptiness. Oh, what does that mean? It means that, that there wouldn't be... This is a card-carrying Buddhist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it would mean that you would see things as they are. Oh, okay. Ah, so see things as they are. Uh, the vulnerability that you're talking about, which I, I, again, my Buddhist filter would say, what you're talking about is not having yeah, a veil, right? Whether that veil obscures or protects, in the end, is still a veil. Right? Where does the veil come from? Like bad things that have happened to you? Yeah, Buddha not interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> At least as a starting point, you know? Mm-hmm. Because Buddha is saying, right now, you know, what is going on? Yeah, when you feel like frustrated, like right now, he says, look into that. Where's that coming from? Yeah, so this is a quality of Buddha's teachings. Not to say that later on, I mean, it has a history of 2,500 years, you know, before Facebook, people had a lot of time. So they tried to think about, you know, what could Buddha mean and what would it mean about the nature of where it originally came from and all of that. You know, Buddhists later developed all sorts of really interesting ideas. And there's a day and time for that. We have other courses if you're interested in that. But this core vision under the tree... I would submit, not interested. But of course, I'm not dismissing what you're saying. I think in learning about why the Buddha wasn't interested in that, we will learn something about you know, this particular vision that is very powerful, that's very helpful, that's very transformative. Because there is, there is, a, there is a significance to not asking the usual questions. I mean, those are legitimate questions you know what is the nature of evil <laughs> but that's it not interested strange you know not interested yeah. where did the world come from where did I come from not interested <laughs> so pure and impure here A slightly different translation would be obscured or not obscured. Then following that, we would say that right now, our hearts are mostly obscured. And though, then what is heart? The question. Knowing. The ability to know or what we call the quality of awareness. 
most of us are not really aware of awareness. We are mostly, all our attention and energy is occupied on the content of awareness or the content of what we know. When was the last time you know, you actually thought about awareness itself or even better, experience awareness itself? So this is the, this is the heart that it's talking about. Yeah? So it's, it's, it's not talking about, you know, you know, the Care Bears, you know, or, you know, Valentine's Day. I, I know my examples are kind of old. I don't know what they have watching these days. Uh, and it's not the, you know, Valentine's Day hard, you know. We're not talking about that hard. Again, there's a time and place for that. Here, the word heart is talking about this quality, this ability to know, to be aware. Yeah, so if we come here, it says all states of being are determined by knowing. So it's because we have awareness, it's because we have this ability to know, then we can experience all states of being. It is this heart, it is this knowing that leads the way. Right? And what has been contrasted in these two cases? So we already have obscured and non-obscured, right? Pure and pure. What's, what else has been contrasted? Do you remember? Impulsive and knowing. Uh, impulsive and knowing, yes. Acting impulsively and acting with knowledge right and then the resulting what suffering, suffering and well-being huh? or suffering and happiness right so basically those are the two columns right those are the two columns yeah impulsively knowing right uh, then suffering and well-being. Okay. Then, of course, obscured and non-obscured. Yeah. Impulsively is when the heart is obscured. Because the impulse doesn't, you know, fall off from the sky and suddenly infect you. <laughs> the impulses are the result of what? Habit. Habit. And habit is formed by an impure heart over time. (laughs) (laughs) Because of being obscured. So then we, we kind of kind of surrender to the habit, you know. And then what happens when we surrender to the habit is we begin to believe the labels 
that arise from these habits. Then I, I'm this, I'm that, I have to be this, I cannot be that. Right Now the obscuration becomes really solid. Then, now of course, you know, solidly good, solidly bad. We can, you know, in a way, yeah, those things are kind of important. But this or this this original way of looking at what the issue is and what the solution is, this meditation that I want to kind of introduce to you, in these four weeks. Um, we will not really focus so much on what's good, what's bad. Because those are the content of what we know. I mean, those are important things. But again, like the distractions that might come, say to them, later. I'll attend to you later. Uh, here, we want to familiarize or get introduced to awareness, knowing. And to see how that knowing actually works. And not, not to be indoctrinated about how it works, but to acquire some skills, some ability to recognize awareness at work. In other words, I think in some other spiritual or religious traditions, we call witnessing. Not in the Jehovah's Witness way. (laughs) Here to be a witness. To be a witness to all the mental, emotional activity that is taking place. That is going on. So to recognize that which knows. That which knows is just a term that we use. That which knows is also the meaning of what? There's a fancy word. What's the fancy word? Consciousness. No, fancy word. Buddha. It also has the meaning of that which knows. So, if you recognize awareness in that moment, there's only awareness. There's not even you to talk about anymore. (laughs) Then there's only Buddha. So all this kind of religious, mystical talk about, you know, Buddha is everywhere. It means, you know, everything that we experience, we experience because of this ability to know. But then we know nothing about 
how this, that which knows, actually works. So Buddha's meditation, in a nutshell, you could say, is learning to recognize awareness as its most basic core. Then, as a result of knowing, of recognizing awareness, then we do not speak or act impulsively. Because when we speak or act impulsively, then it leads to suffering. Yeah. Yes? I, um, I hope I can explain this, but I have, um, for a long time, thought a lot about how important it is for me to be authentic in the moment. Uh-huh. And for me, and you can please help me with this, I think um, part of that... Um, Part of that trust, part part of that authenticity, is speaking from your heart. I don't know what definition of heart I'm referring to here, but um, but speaking just yes. you, the words come and stuff. Like, some of them might be, eh, I wish I hadn't said that, but you're being honest. Yes, about, you know, yes, about things, yes, yes. It's a side effect of living in the South. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be true to myself now. <laughs> probably true too if you're English (laughs) I'm going to speak my mind now and be more American you mean Yankees (laughs) New Yorkers (laughs) Um, joking aside uh, that that definitely I think uh, uh, because you know I I, I totally get where you're coming from Uh, here impulsively in this context It's more talking about um, those negative, you know, kind of like unhelpful, harmful habits that you have formed, but then you have started to believe that's who you are. See, when we begin to kind of understand awareness, then we begin to see how fluid actually everything is. And most of all, this sense of self. The self kind of disappears, but not into like a nihilistic empty place or or leaving you kind of like, you know, poofed. (laughs) Yeah? So don't worry about that. Yeah? Uh, What happens when you recognize this flaw of awareness is that Rather than being pulled and dragged around by whatever sense of self that that you have kind of committed to, you begin to see the way in which self is constituted moment to moment, depending on conditions, depending on situations. In other words, depending on impermanent, ever-changing, uncertain circumstances, which is, hello, life. It's suffering. <laughs> it's suffering. <laughs> life. It's suffering. It's painful. 
Because, in part, when everything is shifting, changing, unstable, uncertain, we have the burden of walking around trying to be stable, unchanging, true to myself, and all that entails in holding all that together. And, 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 and that, no matter how pretty, how good, how moral that's going to be, it's never going to catch up with what's always changing in every moment. Yeah? Now, don't get me wrong. In, in Buddhist training, uh, there is a very strong emphasis on ethics. But it's the kind of ethics that arises having first understood the nature of self. Which is that the self is always making itself. It's a process. It's not a structure. It's because we walk around committed to this structure, committed to this me. Right? Then, then you're like, am I true to myself or not? That's, that's hard. Right? And then, and then this self never seems to be good enough. So then I need to buy self-improvement books. <laughs> I need to sign up for, you know, fancy workshops. There's a single supplement for the weekend retreat rooms too. <laughs> if you can afford it. <laughs> then it's a lot of work, you know. But here, Buddha's vision is that, is, you know, well, without indoctrinating you, Buddha's vision here is to say, let's look at this, this ability to know. Yeah, what is it? Okay, now. I was going to say, should we sit? (laughs) (laughs) Now let's sit intentionally, rather than because of circumstance. (laughs) So just sit in any way that is comfortable. Uh... And uh, rather than prescribing to you this or that, although there's lots of prescriptions, uh, here I'll just emphasize, um, just try to get into a position that at least temporarily you find comfortable. (laughs) And that's all we can ask ask for. So just sit in a position that you find to be comfortable. If you need something to kind of center your mind, uh, try kind of lightly centering it on Uh, actually your body, and then more specifically, 
your spine. Kind of elongate your spine. And kind of imagine it kind of moving upwards, up into the sky. Pay attention to the feeling of having a body, of being in the body. Feel a sense of upliftment, as in physically uplifted. You can think of your spine as the center of everything right now. Then do a sweep of your body using your mind, your heart. Try to note if there is any tension anywhere. When you note the tension, and if it is a tension that is created or is the result of your posture, first note it but don't immediately uh, change it. Just note it. Then slowly change your posture. Adjust the way you sit, the way you put your hands, uh, the way your feet are folded or placed on the floor. But don't immediately uh, modify it. First, just note with awareness. So experiment with your posture. You can open your eyes or close your eyes, half open, half closed, alternate them. Just experiment. 
Don't worry about the phone. Don't panic. Now start to feel, bring your awareness to where your body, where you think your body ends and space begins, that juncture, that border between your body and space. Bring your attention. At first, in a more pervading way, your entire body, the contours of your entire body, where it ends and where the space around you begins. Bring your attention to that. The purpose of that is uh, twofold. One is to be more aware of having a body, to be more aware of being in the body. And secondly, to pay attention to where the line is between the body and space. If extending this to the entire body becomes too vague, then you can direct your attention to a particular part of the body and pay attention to the border between that finger and the space around it, or that ear and the space around it. And if there's tension or pain in some parts of the body now, because you're not used to sitting this way, again, note that. Then slowly shift your body, shift the pressure away from it. And then return to placing your attention on the meeting point between your body or a particular part of your body 
and the space around it. Tell me something. <laughs> you like body is changing. Body is changing. <coughs> the distance. The distance. Uh huh. Say more. Ah, between the sensation of where that that line is, yeah, mm-hmm. seems to change. They're invisible parts. They're invisible parts. Right, a concept of it pops mm-hmm. up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't really know if my back is there or not. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a concept that it's there. <laughs> yeah, if you've never seen yourself in a mirror your whole life, like, what would you imagine you're in? Even that is trusting the mirror a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know why, right? <laughs> but we just do. Like, well, it's the mirror, of course, it's telling the truth. Really? So it's a concept. So what else? Uh huh. Yeah, so the mind can just go to the one part, right? And then to the exclusion of others. So there is some good news and the bad news too, right? In learning about that. Yeah, sometimes a paper cut, you know, feels like it's the worst thing on earth. But then, you know, at other times, if you can isolate that, and say, well, that's, that's just what it is, you know. And that's it. But sometimes that takes us over completely. Mm-hmm. But then at other times, it doesn't seem to matter. 
The same person's breath that can be so soothing listening to on some nights, on other nights. You hold the pillow and you say, Should I do it or not? Should I do it or not? Should I do it? I mean, what's the difference, right? Still the same person. So to say, shifting conditions. Shifting conditions. When you know that these conditions are ever changing, always unstable, always shifting. A certain freedom arises from that knowledge. What else? There's not like a distinct membrane or division between space and the body. It's like if you keep looking for it, it's not there. Mm. Or at least I... Mm-hmm. For now. For now, yeah. Yeah, It doesn't seem to be a distinct kind of point where the body ends, the space begins. But that's not necessarily always the case. I felt like a tingling over the, my skin. Uh-huh, like sure. Coat, something like a sweater that is... Right, right. Heaviness and a lightness at the same time. Like I felt like, whoa, I'm really tired. Uh-huh. And then I also felt kind of just like a relation and a lightness. Mm-hmm. So movement and stillness. Mm-hmm. No? Without any judgment of which is better and which is worse. No. Certain forms of meditation, certain way of approaching meditation, and I think the kind of word on the street is that meditation is about stillness. Stilling, stilling, stilling. Uh, But in this core vision that the historical Buddha had, uh, both stillness and movement uh, have their place. You do not... Seek one and reject the other. I found when I've meditated before that the, the stillness, trying to reach that, has like been torturous with painful things. Like oh, yes. Things. Yeah. Like, oh, God, all I can think about is this like, one vertebrae that's just going to explode. <laughs> and when you have us like, concentrate on it and then actually shift in response to that like but pause in between that was like a lot more a lot easier mm-hmm. now I should say of course uh, with this uh, kind of training um, you go through stages yeah and uh, but they're not stages like uh, say you know me telling you uh, I don't know. Take Page Avenue and go down towards, you know, the Basilica, then make a sharp turn onto Haywood Avenue, 
go till the end of Haywood Avenue, and then get on Patton. Yeah, it's not a stages or journey in the sense in that sense. Although sometimes certain approaches to meditation, including Buddhist meditation, uh, because they are so sophisticated in kind of delineating what they consider to be the stages involved. Uh, I think sometimes that kind of an approach can lead to the kind of rigidity that is unnecessary. And not understanding that we are all different. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, so this approach is not saying you have to take this way to get to West Asheville. It's simply saying we're all going to get meet in West Asheville <laughs> and we're all going to be taking different ways. What is being imparted is more general safety principles of how to get from here to West Asheville. <laughs> Not trying to force everyone onto the same route. And then there's the traffic jam. <laughs> and so in these four weeks, what I want to emphasize more is like, here are a set of kind of tools, you know. When we talk about the path, it's not like there's a one way and everyone is going to see the same thing, experience the same thing, and get to the same place. Get to the same place, yes. But you you should relate to all these methods, all these approaches, in a non-dogmatic way. Which is how the Buddha intended all these methods to be skillfully used not signed on to and to be defended and to be fought over and to be debated but to be skillfully used to skillfully use them to free us yeah I found this um, very stark difference between focusing inward on my spine uh-huh. and like outward uh-huh. on my arms yes. and my knees and like the inward focus and I I realized this the other day too like focusing on my lungs and that it's very powerful because uh-huh. it seems to like anchor me inside yes. of myself right. but then my brain like makes a story about like, <laughs> my nervous system is like the control board yes. it's like so it goes on like sort of this train because of the habit you know yeah yeah um, yeah so those two approaches right I say let's start with the spine I mean, I mean, it's obvious that's an important part of the body huh? that holds everything up and then the nervous system and all of that, right? Sure. So, so in, in a biological way, in a very deep way, that's where we center. Right? But again, do not rigidly, you know, the spine, the spine, the spine. <laughs> yeah? At the same time, we want to train in Expanding out. 
And particularly when expanding out, paying attention to where is it? You know, not not in a kind of like a, a fixed way of thinking. Well, here is where the body ends. Here is not body starts, but rather a felt sense of where body ends and where not body starts. Yeah, body, not body. Rather than concepts about it, rather than kind of like what we might even say commonsensical. Commonsensical is simply don't want to ask <laughs> anymore. That's what we mean by commonsensical. Don't want to ask anymore, let's just agree upon it because no time for it. Right? Therefore, commonsensical. I mean, again, that has its place, right? But here as a technique, as a device, it's helpful to kind of the felt sense, not, not like the theory. Not, not ideas that you read about. But, but, and, and so what you're doing when, when you try to feel like, okay, where does the body actually feels like it ends and not body begins? When you do that, I'm not really interested and I'm, I'm not trying to get you interested in, you know, yeah. that really. That's not the real question being asked. But rather is training our same thing, that knowing, that awareness. It's, it's a technique, it's an approach to get us closer to understanding how this awareness works. The best place to start is the body because if we don't have anything else, that's what we have. And everything else that we work so hard, day in, day out, is to serve this. <laughs> I really... Of course, then the mind, you know, but, but it has to start with the body. But, but we, we in particular, I think culturally... Is so disembodied from from just kind of awareness that hey I have a body oh my goodness so we go from sort of not having an awareness that we have a body that's one kind of disorder so to say that lives simultaneously with the with the other disorder of obsessing over the body yeah, so, so it's this, this is weird kind of like lack of awareness that I am this body and complete obsession fetishizing the body the body the body but what, what is the body When did flesh, blood, pus become the body? Then we have body image. Good body image. Bad body image. Those are concepts. Concepts that are conditioned. So in, in this approach to Buddhist meditation, 
we begin by kind of working with concepts and conditions. Because when we work with concepts and conditions, and when I say work with concepts and conditions, I don't mean talk through those concepts. There is no end to talking through those concepts. So this is different from therapy. I mean, therapy has its, again, its role, its purposes, and all of that. Here, we should not confuse those two things. Here, we are purely looking at these concepts and these conditions and recognizing them as such. And, And seeing how they are constantly shifting, changing, unreliable, unpredictable, uncertain. Training that. But that's not the end of this story. So that's the movement. That's the movement. The other part is when we train to kind of look at this, eventually all these movements, all these conditions, all these uh, concepts, they point to the unconditioned which is awareness itself. The knowing quality, which is Buddha itself. To be awake. The rest are like, you know, waves. You know, and then there is the bed of the ocean that allows the waves and the water to be what they are. So in Buddhist kind of language, we say, there's good karma, bad karma, good things, bad things, all happening. But what underlies that is this quality of knowing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you had a question, though, a point. Yeah. Yeah, so that which is conditioned and shifting and changing is um, one, one side of, of, of the story. Uh, and here, I, what I'm saying is that when we pay attention to that, not feed them, but pay attention to them, witness them, watch them, then we begin to have suspicion that there is something, if we want to call it a thing, that is supporting all this activity. And that's where the stillness comes from. But the goal here is not, so before you know, we think, oh, I want more stillness. The goal here is to recognize that stillness and movement it's this pair that is dancing. Mm-hmm. To come back to the condition thing, uh-huh. do you mean like things that we've been taught by like society to think? And and doing? even deeper than that, certainly all of that. Mm-hmm. But anything that is conditioned. Trained. Uh, you, me, 
table here, house here. Yeah, all sorts of conditions unnecessary for this ceiling to remain a ceiling. So what is that unconditioned? Ah. Ah. Unconditioned. Right now, uh, the special pencil at home. Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, this unconditioned. uh, In fact, not very useful to talk too much about it. It's not very useful. Yeah, to talk too much about it because you know we're operating within the world of conditions. Uh, So, all another way of putting it. in the relative world that we live in. Uh, and then the ultimate. Uh, but the ultimate and the relative are not like two, sep- two separate kinds of existence. Uh, they're two sides of the same coin. I don't know if I know what that means. Like That's okay. The heaven and yeah. this world or something. You know, da-da-da. Da-da-da, you know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, in this part of the course, uh, our focus is more really on uh, training our ability to recognize shifting, changing conditions. Uh, as important as it is to learn certain skills, certain techniques to do this, it's also kind of the overall attitude to this whole approach. So the overall attitude to this whole approach is there is nothing to do, there is nothing to gain, there is nothing to improve. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing to improve, there's nothing to gain, there's nothing to get right, so you can't go wrong. So sometimes it's expressed as purposelessness sitting of course it's just being poetic right I mean it's not really literally purposeless purposelessness right then like what the heck are you doing here but the attitude to it has to be yeah there's nothing to gain or put it in another way this training is a training in letting go because we already are there? Perhaps. <laughs> More because, well, no no need, no point me telling you, uh, just saying that the overall approach to it uh, should be, there's nothing to gain. It's okay. Yeah, there's nothing to gain. Uh, uh, maybe less mystically, if that sounds mystical to you, it would be just this is just self care time. This is just an exercise to be in the moment, to enjoy the moment, and whatever happens, happens. Just see. If we want to get more into kind of this vision, the Buddha said that becoming uh, is at the root of unhappiness. 
becoming is at the root of unhappiness. Now, you don't have to take this statement to you know, the ends of earth and apply it to every realm in your life. Uh, in fact, I don't recommend that. <laughs> we all have our responsibilities to family, to society, and all of that. And again here, it's not to convert you into this new way of approaching everything. Again, take this as simply, right? A suggestion, a tool. That there is a place, there is a context, there is a time where simply letting go is the intelligent thing to do. Because we, we have already spent so much time, so many years in our lives, so many hours have been spent, so much money has been spent learning how to accumulate, how to hold on. So don't worry about losing that skill. <laughs> you have invested enough in that, so that is pretty fine. Here, this Sunday, next three Sundays, learn a little bit about letting go. And, and that, might let in, that might open up a little bit of space in the claustrophobia <laughs> that you might be experiencing. And when the space opens up a little bit, then light can come in. And when light comes in, that's the pure, that's the unobscured that we're talking about. So it's not a moralistic purity. It's clarity. The knowing nature itself. Not the content. Yeah? When we recognize that, that knowing nature, the way that knowing uh, works, then it is said, so maybe now we enter the realm of religion, <laughs> Then it is said, quite naturally, what is good, what is beneficial, you will gravitate towards that. That which is harmful, that, that which is unskillful, you, you don't want to do it. Because it's not natural. Worrying is not natural. Right? Oh, no, you don't believe that. <laughs> it's habituating. But no matter how well you habituate worrying, you never get used to it. Because if you get used to worrying, right? Then you're like, oh... It's the weekend. Let me start worrying. <laughs> I've had a tough week. Ah, worrying is so natural. <laughs> I mean, it's unnatural, you know? That's why we're never comfortable with it. You could habituate it, and, and certainly we do habituate it, but you don't, you, you're not at ease when you're worried. I mean, it sounds stupid to say that, right? 
But we don't act like that. <laughs> is there, is, are there situations, circumstances where worrying would lead to something positive? Probably. But that's not saying that worrying is natural. So don't buy that story. That to worry is natural. To be resentful is natural. To be angry at someone is natural. It's not natural. I mean, no need to philosophize over it. You don't need, you know, a $3 million grant to prove that worrying is not natural. Although people make their livelihoods that way. <laughs> it gets reported, you know, in the New York Times. And then it gets posted and reposted on Facebook okay. by Buddhists and say, see, Buddha already said so. <laughs> Nobody needs to really tell us that. It was natural. I mean, then we've gotten used to it by now. Then, you know, urban dharma can shut down. Nothing else to do. <laughs> It's not natural. So, now, good. Glad you said that. (laughs) So, in the face of not natural, then what do we do? Let's go protest it. (laughs) We want an end to suffering now, now, now. (laughs) It's not going to happen. It is the way it is. And that's part of the training. Yeah, so, so just because it's not natural yeah, doesn't mean then our relationship with it has to be adversarial. Because then we create problems. Right? Is it natural to feel pain? I mean, the word natural is kind of loaded, right? Uh, so let's just say uh, should you be happy when you're painful? <laughs> no. Do I have pain now? Yes. <laughs> Don't make an enemy out of the pain. Uh, the Buddha's way of kind of approaching the problems that we have is not to make enemies out of them. So meditation, the practice of meditation, look for a quiet place. Look for a place where there isn't a lot of traffic going on. But if you are looking for a place where it's the optimal, in your mind, environment for meditating, you would never find it. Although we do sell cushions that make it easier for you. <laughs> we have accessories to accessorize your awakening. <laughs> My teachers, when the meditation session ends, they go, 
But here, you know, we have. Ooh. <laughs> Where was I? Accessorizing. <laughs> Before accessorizing, where pain, right? It, it is. Yeah, it is what it is. You know. So you you don't make an enemy. So so uh, so you say you know like, uh, oh gosh, I can't meditate because you know, it's spring, and my neighbors just got a puppy. Of course, that's what everybody does at spring, right? <laughs> Time to go get a puppy or a baby, but baby, you can't just go get one. So you go get a puppy. You know, and the wah, 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 you know, right when I just want to start meditating, the world is indeed against me. They got a puppy, right? Then you are there, you know. Then you make an enemy out of the puppy, right? You know, why is it still barking? And then, more to the point, of course, for us, most of us have a soft spot for puppies, yeah? which is not in all cultures. Some cultures have a soft spot for different reasons, <laughs> but in this case, right, we have a soft spot for the puppy. So then, we don't blame the puppy; we blame those damn neighbors, right? If the pet misbehaves, it's the owner. So then we fight that, right? But who's causing the trouble? <laughs> you are. It's the nature of the dog to bark. Yeah, the sound didn't come and say, you know, hey Bray, hey Bray, hey Bray, you know. It's Bray that's going out going, damn sound, damn sound, damn sound. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't recognize like these shifting conditions. Yeah, so leave leave that alone. So as I suggested, when we start, you know, when we come in and we just say, later. Yeah. So after meditation, when you're all, you know, at ease, then you can go out and yell at the door. <laughs> <laughs> talk to the neighbor and say, you know, hey, you need to do something about this. <laughs> so, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, right? All these sensory experiences... They're not where the problem is. It's us making them a problem. So this is not a life-denying practice. The self-mortification, the mind over matter, right? All these like mental gymnastics. Like how well I can meditate depends on, you know, I don't even hear anything now. That's not the goal of this practice, right? I can't hear anything now. Well, there are other ways to achieve that state. It's called getting old. (laughs) So just need a little bit of patience, you'll get there. So that's not the goal, you know. So, this attitude of like, there's nothing to gain. You're not achieving anything. 
So don't think of it as achieving enlightenment or achieving Buddha or even achieving happiness. Because none of these things are kind of solidly achievable things. But they can be experienced. Right? It's quite different to think in terms of the verbs to achieve and to experience. If we actually pay attention to what we mean when we say experience something, then kind of worked into that is the fact that then you will not experience it. <laughs> and then it's over. Let it be. When the conditions are right, you will experience it. When the conditions are not right, you're going to experience something else. So that too is part of this training. It's not about controlling. It's about letting go. There is the mindless, careless letting go, which you don't need to train that one. (laughs) This is a different kind of letting go. So this letting go begins with learning how our heart minds work. So as a start, we do say, learn how to still the mind. But but we're not trying to achieve stillness of mind. But we are trying to experience the quality of a still mind. To, to kind of experience that quality. And so when the experience arises, recognize that, ah, that stillness. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain quality to stillness. Stillness that comes with awareness is bright. It's bright, it's inspiring. It's calming. It eases you. But there's also stillness that is dull. And that kind of like a state of stupor. Which you can also achieve through meditation. (laughs) We don't want that kind of. See, the reason we are training in this stillness is to actually recognize the knowing. Then there is movement. Then later we also train in movement, which is to watch where the mind, when it moves. So now you don't stop it anymore. Because when you, the more you watch how it moves, the more you have awareness. Right now, all those movements has no awareness. And so it's draining. And so we experience that movement as chaos, 
as confusion, as mental work, as draining. But if that movement is coupled with awareness, with knowing, with knowledge, then we say the infinite qualities of liberation. You know, all that good stuff, the care bear. (laughs) All, All those things come. So this particular view uh, makes an assumption, uh, assumption related to what I was saying earlier, that it is unnatural to worry, to be resentful, to be hateful, but it's natural to be giving, loving, because it feels good. So it has a very kind of optimistic view of who we are. It's grounded in that. So let's maybe stretch a little, walk around. I know it's almost four, but we're going to spend about the last ten minutes doing an exercise in uh, stilling. So just stretch around. So aside from uh, those of us who can be here, uh, there are also some friends uh, participating uh, from through uh, Skype, and uh, I think there are some questions from them. So maybe we can start with those. All right. Um, this question um, is. Does, do you have any advice on using the practice of meditation during times of high stress in crowded environments? Uh, well, <laughs> using meditation in times of stress in crowded areas. Um, meditation is... Or, or what meditation is... Um, aiming to do is of course to train us so that when those situa- we find ourselves in those situations uh, we don't get kind of thrown into chaos uh, but if you don't yet have the training uh, then when you're in those situations it's kind of hard <laughs> I mean that's the blunt truth Right. Um, I mean, before you can drive like a NASCAR driver, it takes a lot of training. Uh, but if you're now, you know, suddenly you woke up and you're in one of those things. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> <laughs> So then the advice would be, stay alert. (laughs) Hard to be peaceful and at ease and in control, but try not to die. (laughs) Then get off that course and then go start training. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unless, again, 
you have some training, right? But if you're just beginning, then it's better if your neighbors didn't get a dog. <laughs> uh, you know, you find like you know more conducive environments. Uh, but then sometimes. Uh, not sometimes. I think a lot of times, um, m- people who meditate are meditators. Uh, it seems that they get less and less tolerant of sounds, sights, smells. They become, you know, kind of hermits. It's hard to say whether um, this is something uh, good or not. I think it varies from case to case. Some people come to meditation um, because they they're in pain, obviously, uh, in in the case that I'm in cases that I'm thinking of, and rather than relating to Buddhist meditation as a path to freedom, they relate to Buddhist meditation as what I might call uh, an escape from reality rather than an escape into reality. Then it becomes a crutch or a drug to numb um, right because we don't know how what to do with our feelings so meditation could be misused as a, a way to numb those feelings mm-hmm. and then we become aloof and we think we're enlightened mm-hmm. but we have just become emotionally unavailable mm-hmm. I mean I have friends who grew up with parents who went that way and they didn't have a good childhood. They, they blame it on their parents' involvement with meditation. Um, it's, it's real, you know? Those situations happen. I, I don't think this is what the Buddha taught. So we've got to be careful yeah. about spiritual bypassing, uh, kind of thinking that, oh, I'm so enlightened now. But, yes, uh, you know, certainly to these days, uh, there is the use, it's very fashionable, and I think it is beneficial that meditation has been used. So not just in the case of, like, handling stress, handling, you know, uh, chaotic situations, uh, but also, like, uh, managing pain and all that. And there are, you know, some very good programs out there and uh, I would encourage you to consider those programs uh, instead of you know, immediately wondering you know what chemicals can I put in the body to handle that again I, I don't you know I, I take painkillers uh, you know when I have a headache or anything like that but that's not the whole picture I'm uh, you know, I think certain techniques that have developed over the centuries 
around Buddhist meditation can be taken out of its context and kind of applied in a beneficial way. Um, Mm. But uh, here, what I have more of a direct experience of is not in that area. So I, I can't, you know, if I do, I'm just like repeating things that I've read and just passing them on like I know what I'm talking about. Um, this program is more on like the vision under the tree, which is what did the Buddha awake to? And how might that be relevant to, you know, our kind of existential angst, <laughs> which Buddhists call suffering? Suffering. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, you have something to add to this? Yeah. Just okay. Just, yeah. just the, the idea. Sometimes, like initially, as a as a Westerner, the, the idea of suffering, uh, it's kind of like, you know, let me find the way out. But it seems that the more most Asians the I know have the same. It's more like the way to get in. Most Asians I know have the same idea too. Yeah, it's like it's more like, especially with the idea of compassion. It's more of like the way to get in and really um, engage in life to the fullest. Because without, without, with the clarity and without the obscurations, it's it isn't exciting. It's like you, mm-hmm. you know, like at, at first it can be like a. Or sometimes it can be like I just want to get the hell out of here. Right. I'm really tired, right. and right. I just want to go home. But it's more like the more the more you. I mean, my experience is the more you engage in meditation. It's like you want to be in here because you're excited to wake mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and see what unfolds in yes. play. It's like wow, you know. Yeah. So it's not like you know, get me out of here. <laughs> yes. So it's it's a kind of like again, you know. There's no one size that fits all. Yeah. Uh, you gain the the tools, you gain the kind of view, the understanding, and then you have to apply in your situation. Sometimes it is just running away, mm-hmm. but sometimes that's what you need. Mm-hmm. When things go too crazy, you can't just say, you know, I need to be present for this experience. Yeah, <laughs> you so know, hard. sometimes you need to run away, but recognize that's the important mm-hmm. part recognize that that's what's going on and not kid ourselves and think, you know, I'm advancing in my meditation. Um, so in the beginning, it's, it's better to find places that are more conducive. And then as we gain experience and as, as we deepen our practice, uh, then we need to do less and less of looking for ideal environments, ideal situations. Because ultimately, (laughs) it's in the heart-mind. Yeah. No amount of manipulating anything outside is going to solve the problem that arose from the inside. (laughs) Yes? No more questions. Wow, that's good. Okay, as I said, uh, I, w- I would like for us to do a little bit of this um, training in the stillness. So, so again, you know, with an attitude of openness to these, uh, this particular technique, understand that it's a suggestion. 
understand that uh, you know having confidence and devotion to say the Buddha's teachings uh, for people who self-identify as Buddhist uh, can be very helpful uh, can be very inspiring um, but not if it is done in a way that kind of uh, takes away from the aliveness of these teachings that they become kind of dogmatic uh, things that you have to you know that you put on the altar and worship uh, but these are living techniques to be applied uh, ultimately we say the Dharma the Buddha's teachings uh, are not to be believed in but to be applied uh, so you should approach uh, even uh, these instructions with that attitude uh, and then the more you kind of own it right? meaning try it yourself and see how it works for you but don't be so quick to say no it doesn't work for me <laughs> yeah uh, but you have to make it your own otherwise you're just listening to someone parroting things and then and then right you come up with again that thing of i want to be good enough for the techniques then then we have put things like out of order now these techniques is to help us, not us. I want to live up to the ideal that the techniques are talking about. Then, then, then we got the whole approach <laughs> wrong already. Right? Okay, so again, sit in a way that's comfortable. Uh, sit with awareness. Uh, sit in a way that you find to be, at least for now, relatively uh, comfortable. Starting with the uh, centering uh, in our spine and feel the rest of the body. Then when you are ready, focus on, bring your attention or sustain your awareness on your breathing. your attention from the body as a whole uh, into uh, closer and closer and narrower to uh, where your nostrils are and just have bare awareness of the sensation of breath entering nostrils and leaving 
of the nostrils. It doesn't matter how the body happens to breathe, long or short, deep or shallow. Just let the breath happen on its own. And tell yourself that I'm just resting in this flow. Nothing to do, nothing to achieve. Just resting on this ebb and flow of breath. All you need to do is to be aware of one breath. Just one breath. In fact, no need to count. Just be aware of the one breath that is taking place. Whether it's inhale or exhale, it's only one breath. So your awareness and your focus it's not over 20 minutes or even 2 minutes. It's just resting in that one single breath. Because at any given time, at any given moment, there can only be one breath. So this is the homework I would like to leave with you. To the degree that you uh, work with this homework, then I think next Sunday uh, you can come back and hopefully get more out of this because you'll be coming from experience rather than theorizing, rather than having read somewhere, rather than having heard someone say it. Uh, but at the same time, don't relate to this homework as when you were relating to homework. <laughs> then it becomes really unpleasant. <laughs> and also, you know, don't relate to this as, you know, the next time I go see the dentist. So that morning... <laughs> <laughs> brushing against brushing away religiously that morning <laughs> uh, but you know 
if, if you familiarize yourself uh, with this. So really, you only need to have the ability to sustain awareness of one breath. If you can do that, then congratulations, you can join the club called Meditation Club. <laughs> 20 minutes is an abstract, is a concept. Two hours is a concept. Just a concept. What is not a concept is that's it. Then you have the next inhalation and exhalation. That's it. Every time you can maintain awareness for one breath, right? If it helps, you can have an emoticon come up. Yes. Yes. (laughs) If that inspires you, you know. Success. 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 (laughs) That's it, you know. One breath. Come back to the one breath. Um, It helps if you, uh, when you start for that session, you know, you say, I want to spend 10 minutes. So you set your time or, you know, there are apps where you can have this (laughs) in 10 minutes or 7 minutes, you know, there are apps for everything. Maybe they'll create an app where it meditates for you. (laughs) I mean, I'm looking for that day. (laughs) But but before you start your app and all that, an important internal app is the app that says, no matter what arises in the next 10 minutes, the message is, what? Later. Later. Okay, okay, later. Yeah. Not like go away, you know, bad thought, bad thought, good thought. <laughs> no, just later. So then 10 minutes, you know, you just say later. You know. So if you find your mind kind of straying to, you know, oh, I need to plan dinner later. Uh, you know, I need to plan what to say to the client tomorrow later. And you don't have to do. It's better to do short, but many times throughout the day. So this is not like a training and you know, like hours and hours of you know, I can meditate so well that I can sit for six hours at a go. You know, it's like uh, the meditation Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> see who gets the goal <laughs> so thank you for coming and if you want um, more support for this Tuesday night uh, John will be facilitating the sitting from 7.30 to 8.30 and um, if not um, we'll see you next Sunday from 2 to 4 Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Urban Dharma NC podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting our mission to foster a deeper understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, to build meaningful community, and to integrate contemplative teachings into everyday life. We invite you to make a donation online at udharmanc.com or make a purchase at our store, tibetanspirit.com. Thank you. May all beings benefit.